Welcome to the Reform Rookie Podcast. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. And so? Worthy vicar, do we find anything here of relics? By faith man lives and is made righteous, not by what he does for himself. Be it adoration of relics, singing of masses, pilgrimages to Rome, purchase of pardon for his sins, but by faith in what God has done for him already through his son. Dr. Martin, if you leave the Christian to live only by faith, if you sweep away all good works, all these glorious things you dismiss as mere crutches, what will you put in their place? Christ. Man only needs Jesus Christ. So, tonight we begin our study of Leviticus. I don't know actually how far, we're not going to get far into Leviticus at all. We're not, I'm not looking to actually start. We might reference some things, uh, but basically this is going to be an introduction. And we'll see if I can just keep tonight to be the only introduction and not introduction part one. Um, it is a, it's a book that has been neglected by many. <laughs> you know, even when people try to do their Bible readings, <laughs> You know, they get through Genesis, and they get to Exodus, and then they start to drop off. And then Leviticus, and all of a sudden it's like, take your offering, break it into pieces, put it on the altar. Like, mm, I don't know. And so people kind of get lost in it, and uh, it's sometimes a place where people lose their, their Bible reading motivation. But the reason, there's a few reasons why we're, we're doing this study. Number one, obviously on Sundays we're going through the book of Hebrews. And as Pastor preaches through that, he's mentioned that he wants to, during our scripture reading portion, read through the book of Leviticus because there's so much parallel. There's so much going on uh, that Hebrew explains and, and shows the superiority of Christ. So he wants to go through Leviticus to give us that context. And I thought it would be useful if we dove into that and got into it and, and studied it and studied the, the themes and, and the topics going on there. And that would be beneficial. On top of that, um, to show how it still it still has relevance for us today, uh, I'm using a few different commentaries on this to um, to gather insight uh, because it is it, it's a book that's not often uh, talked about. It's not often preached on, so it, it's somewhat of a mystery to us. So I'm for my own instruction and and just getting to know the, the book better. I've got a couple of commentaries that I'll be reading through. Um, and it was one of those things where it's going to be, uh, it's almost intimidating, you know, this, the size of it, the, the, the amount of reading that has to be done. Uh, but as Gary North says, you know, how do you eat an, an elephant one bite at a time? And uh, Gary North is a guy who has written some very large commentaries, and he's got a very large commentary on Leviticus. Uh, but he wants to be thorough. He wants to get in depth, and he. I, I want to share some of a lot of the things I'm going to share tonight are things I read just like in his forward and introduction to to his commentary. So another, and as we go through it, especially tonight with the introduction. Uh, for us here, who you know, who we hold to Reformed theology, also known as Covenant theology, 
this introduction and, and looking through this book is going to reinforce our appreciation for covenant theology because God deals with his people in covenant. And it's throughout. I mean, he uses pictures throughout. The, not only do we have this, uh, you know, what is revealed, what is written, you know, that we have the direct text and direct word, um, but he uses pictures to teach the people. And, you know, the, the Levites were instructed to teach the people the law of God. And so they would take this and they would expound on it and they would, they would be able to talk about the underlying things there. In fact, when people are looking at the book of Leviticus, there are so many ways that they've tried to approach it. I mean, they had some, you know, the early patristics who would, you know, use allegory. Like, it was so confusing. Like, they're like they'll try to, like, explain it, you know, but they've kind of, they get, they kind of take away the whole um, <laughs> plain meaning of it, too. They, they go too far away. And you have others who come to use, um, uh, talk about uh, typology. You know, we're pointing everything to Christ. And much of Leviticus does point us to Christ. And that's a crucial part of understanding it because we get a deeper... If you don't know what's going on in Leviticus, you're not going to understand, like, why does Christ have to die on the cross? You know, what's the point of the sacrifice? What, what's all these different things uh, going on? What is he fulfilling exactly? Uh, the Jewish audience understood that. When you look at um, the Gospel of Matthew, he's constantly pointing back to, and to fulfill this, and to fulfill what the, the, the prophecy said, and to fulfill this scripture. Um, Jesus is, he's not just coming out of the blue and saying, all right, I gotta, I gotta, no, this was something that they were all looking to. They were waiting for the Messiah and uh, for all these things to take place. Um, but I, I want to show you how there's, we see the covenant theology, we see the covenant framework right here in the, in the Pentateuch, the, the first five books of the Bible. So we'll get into that in just a moment. Um, this is the other part of of, of why I'm, I'm, I'm sharing this study is, um, you know, we, we here at, at Hope, you know, we say time and again how, um, you know, Scripture applies to every area of life, right? It, it's not just something you do on Sunday. It's not just something for Wednesday nights. Um, it has to do with every part of life, you know, within the, the, the relationship of, well, first, as an individual, you know, in the family, um, in the, yes, in the church, in, in body life there, but in the, the civil arena as well. God has something to say about all of it. Mm. Gary North is an economist. His background is, is economics, and yet he, he writes Leviticus from the point of, um, you know, the economy and, and says, because there's no neutrality. You know, it's not just up for grabs for anyone to do whatever they want. God has a way of working through it. And he reveals that, and, and books like Leviticus bear that out. So he's going to help tease some of those concepts out and, and explain stuff that we've probably overlooked. Um, and this is, I'll share a quote that I uh, appreciate of his. He says, I'm writing for an audience that is not yet in existence. Uh, this non-existent audience is the future leadership of Christianity. At some point, there will be an unprecedented Christian revival, the Holy Spirit will make his worldwide move. Many will be called and many will be chosen. One of the results of this worldwide re revival will be the revival of the ideal of Christendom, the civilization that is kingdom of God and history. Christianity will eventually possess 
sufficient judicial authority by means of Christian candidates' popular election to political office or their appointment to judicial office to begin to apply God's Bible-revealed laws to civil government. That victorious generation and the generations that will follow it will need a great more than a 200-page commentary. Those future generations will need more, uh, many commentaries like this one, comprehensive with the specialized field of study. I want this, com uh, this commentary to become a model for those future commentaries in such fields as education, social theory, and political theory. Until such studies exist and exist in profusion, Christianity will not be taken seriously as a religion with answers to the world's problems. Christianity will continue to be dismissed as simply one more experiment in mystical personal escape and well-organized fundraising. There's Gary North. <laughs> oh, always with the jab. Um, so, you know, we talk about dominion, like even you hear us uh, praying this morning, and Pastor Anthony is praying that God would have dominion over our hearts and take dominion over the world. I mean, the Lord's Prayer, the, the prayer that all Christians know is, you know, thy kingdom come and thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Mm -hmm. And Jesus taught us to pray that. Was the idea to pray that so it would never come true? <laughs> or is there the natural expectation that it will come true? So when God put man in the garden, he told him to take the minion. He told him to rule well, uh, to keep the garden, to guard it. And the idea was that there should be a spreading out over the earth to cover it, to be God's vice regents, to uh, you know, image him in all of creation. You know, we are his image bearers. With the fall and everything that, you know, transpires after, we still see God telling us, you know, to be fruitful and multiply. Uh, we still see God telling us that he, he wants to dwell with his people. And so that's the purpose of the tabernacle and the temple, ultimately pointing to Christ. You know, God dwelling with man. And now Christ goes to the cross, goes to the grave, he rises again. And he tells his disciples before he leaves, all authority belongs to me in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and disciple the nations. That's dominion. And people argue about what that's going to look like in the end. Um, but we see a Christ who is victorious. You know, we, we read uh, Psalm 2 and why the nations rage, right? And, and he sits in heaven and he laughs. And he tells them to kiss the sun. You know, lest he be angry and they perish in the way. There is no neutrality. We are all, we are all under the the reign of Christ, either as rebels or as ambassadors. Um, so he's writing, recognizing that a lot of people aren't going to hear what he's saying at at this point. He says, "Yeah, I wrote it for economists who aren't going to pay attention to me anyway. I wrote it to pastors who don't read long, you know, theological books, especially about economy." You know, but he goes, I wrote it for, for students yet to come who are going to want to know how to look at these things and then, you know, apply it. And I believe God's word does apply. This is still, you know, uh, relevant to us and, and relevant to the future. And so talking about this now, being aware of it now, um, and passing that on to the next generation, uh, this is what we're supposed to do. And when the time comes and civilization crumbles and we're rebuilding... I don't know if you've seen the way things are now, you know, um, it seems like we're getting closer and closer to that point where, you know, the devastation will be complete and we'll need to rebuild and you're going to need to know how. 
and and God's word is going to tell us how. Um, so I'm hoping that this will be helpful. Um, and what I'm trying to do is take these different uh, commentaries and talk about the um, talk about the different you know concepts that are there. I mean, people think of Leviticus, and what's the first word that you might think of when you think of Leviticus? Thou shalt not. Thou shalt not. Yeah, that's certainly in there. I mean, like as a concept. Laws. Laws. Okay. What kind of laws? Ceremonial. Ceremonial laws, right? Oh. You have that. Um, you also have um, you have ceremonial laws. You have relational laws. Uh, when you have uh, Jesus Christ giving the, the two greatest commandments, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Right? So that's the greatest commandment. And that's found in Deuteronomy. What's the second commandment? Second greatest commandment. Love your neighbor. Love your neighbor as yourself, and that's from Leviticus. So um, these relational things are, are part of it. Um, but like one of the main ideas that we'll find in uh, Leviticus is holiness. Right? God is holy, and we're called to be holy like God is holy. Um, there's the understanding of His presence. God is dwelling with his people, and yet he's telling them, in order to dwell, <laughs> this is how you have to be. Um, we have the idea of covenant. Uh, covenant, the, the word covenant is actually only used a few times in Leviticus, and like eight times are in one chapter. <laughs> so, But the idea of covenant is throughout the book. And, and of course, sacrifice and, and the different reasons for sacrifice. Uh, those are also in there. And atonement, and we have you know, the chapter on the Day of Atonement, again, pointing to Christ. So there's all these different things that we need to um, discuss. And as we go through, uh, we will be discussing it. My hope is to, you know, we'll start in chapter 1, <laughs> and um, we'll talk about these things as we go. You know, I mean, you could organize it in different ways. You can organize it by topic. Um, but my, my hope will be to just take it, starting in chapter 1, I don't know if it's exactly going to be a line-by-line line thing because there's, there's things that are repetitive and, and, and stuff. Um, but, but following along with that and just trying to show, show how each area applies and, and what we should be taking from it. Um, for us in the New Testament era, you know, uh, Leviticus, Leviticus is important. Um, it has information about the sacrificial system that's vital in our understanding to uh, Jesus's uh, sacrificial death, and we talked about, you know, mentioned that already. You know, uh, talking about sin and atonement, uh, insight into both the need and the benefits through sacrifice that are accomplished through sacrifice. Uh, we know that Jesus is the ultimate high priest, and you know, Hebrews talks about that. Um, we also know that all believers are priests, right? We are a royal priesthood. And so we have this relationship with God and we have this relationship with the rest of the world. Um, uh, you have the idea of the tabernacle. And just uh, talking about that for a second, if you guys are probably aware, you know, um, Leviticus is a book that's, you know, the context. So obviously we have the Pentateuch, right? You have the first five books of the Bible and it's right there in the middle. But like as far as the uh, historical narrative that's going on, it, it's pretty much from Exodus 20 or, or 25 um, to Numbers 10. Like you can look at all of Exodus, um, all of Leviticus, and all of Numbers as 
the historical context. You have them coming out of Egypt, and they're going through the wilderness. Uh, but you know, Exodus 20 is when we first get the the Ten Commandments, and then following that is you know the case laws. Exodus 25 is when he starts to give the instructions for the building, the construction of the tabernacle. And then you get to the end of Exodus, and Leviticus begins like, the tabernacle is a tent of meeting. So he goes, and he called him to the tent of meeting. So they've set it up, and now he's going to tell them more. And he's going to talk about the sacrifices as far as the individuals and what they're supposed to be doing. He's going to you know, tell the priests what they're supposed to be going to do. He's going to be talking about the you know clean and unclean. He's going to be talking about all these different things, and it goes all the way through, um, you know, Numbers ten. There's still instruction for the priests, for the Levites, and then you have the the rest of the narrative um, leading up to Deuteronomy, when you know the next generation is going to come and take the land. Um, so you have that, but the, so the tabernacle is is sort of like that. Um, its operation that was a gift from God under the covenant that gave all the congregation access to a holy God, right? He's still saying he's going to dwell with men, that he's going to take a people for himself, and that they could come and they could have communion with him. Now, obviously, in the New Testament, Christ is the tabernacle, right? He's tabernacled among us. He's taken on flesh. He's, he's become uh, like us in that sense that we, you know, we have this relationship with him. Um, and then also the call to be holy like God, like Yahweh, their, their covenant-keeping God. And, um, and, of course, that's restated in the New Testament as well, that we're supposed to be holy as he's holy. And Jesus says, you know, be perfect as my heavenly Father is perfect. So these are all concepts that are rooted back in Leviticus that still obviously have um, relevance for us today uh, in the New Testament era. Um, but I wanted, to, I wanted to talk a little bit about covenant. I know we've talked about it in different times and places, um, and, and maybe some of you in your own study are aware of certain things uh, about the covenant model and where you see it. Um, but if you're not, you might really enjoy this because it's really neat to see how God uh, works these things out. Does anyone have any questions so far? Anything I've said that doesn't make sense or any comments? No? All right, I'll keep talking then. So there's one more thing I wanted to point out that was interesting, and, and this was brought up in one of the commentaries. Keep in mind, you know, he calls to Moses and he calls him and he tells them how, how the sacrifices are, are going to be done in the festival. He's telling them everything that they need to know, and he's also telling the priests how they're supposed to function and what they're supposed to do. And the interesting thing about this is that these speeches you know, um, that are given, that are instructing the people, is for everyone. You know, it's for everyone to hear. So, you know, the, the, the lady, as it were, you know, um, they're being told what's expected of them, you know, in the presence of the priest. But the priests are being told what's expected of them in the presence of the lady. So that there would be, there's accountability. It's not just, you know, the, the priests have this secret knowledge. And only they know about it. And they can tell you what to do and what not to do. And if you have a corrupt priest, they can run roughshod over the people. We know that some of them try to do that anyway. And, you know, you think of um, Eli and his sons, Hophni and Phinehas. And they're doing all sorts of wrong things. But they knew because he's like, oh, we're not going to take boiled meat. But he goes, well, just wait and finish. He goes, give it to us or we take it by force. You know, that's a problem. 
you know, and, and, and God is going to deal with them. But they knew you're not worshiping God right. And so they're trying to hold them accountable. And ultimately, God is going to deal with them. He's going to put them to death uh, for what they did. Um, but it's interesting that everyone is getting to see it. Uh, everyone is aware of it. It's not a private, uh, professional message. Everyone is aware. Everyone is accountable. And they can hold each other accountable. And so um, having this knowledge, a congregation was able to was given some responsibility encouraging the priests to live in harmony with these laws. The cooperation between the priests and the laity was a liberating dynamic for the nation of Israel. An informed laity could not be easily dominated or oppressed, not easily anyway, by a priesthood that kept knowledge about the cult a closely guarded secret. In Israel, God spoke to all Israelites, not just a select few. Thus, the instruction of the congregation about this professional knowledge guarded against the growth of a rich priestly class that could dominate and exploit the people. Rather, in Israel, the priests were Yahweh's servants. The priests were Yahweh's servants to lead and assist the people in worship and keeping the law. Um, if you've listened to um, uh, Apologia Radio, you know, those guys there, um, and Cross Politic as well, but like Apologia, they would talk about how the, the laws that we have in America that are for justice and righteousness, he goes, well, you, think, you can thank God for that. You, you can thank the scriptures for that. You know, um, the idea of um, you don't have to incriminate yourself, right? You, you don't have to cooperate with, with an investigation. You have the right to remain silent. He goes, you got that from scripture. You know, you're welcome. Um, think, think about Jesus. Jesus never sinned, right? So if you had to, if you had to answer every question, if you had to face every every little thing, and 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 speak to it every time, well then he sinned because he would remain silent. <laughs> yeah, and they would ask him these questions, and no, and he did that with with confidence. He wasn't sinning, right? Um, so if if the laws, you know, the laws are just, and if if the if the evidence is there, if they're able to find it, you'll be convicted. If not, God will deal with you. <laughs> if you are guilty and they don't, they don't find the evidence to deal with you, God will deal with you, and he's the ultimate judge. You know, we, you hear about things today like, we believe all women, right, until it's Biden. And then, like, well, you don't necessarily have to believe her. It's, you know, it's a double standard on that side. Um, but they are, so, they are so afraid of letting someone who might be guilty go free that they'd rather see innocent men uh, go to jail and, and suffer rather than let any possibly guilty person get away free because they don't have a biblical perspective. They don't have an eternal perspective and they feel like justice has to happen here or it doesn't happen at all. And so they'd rather innocent people suffer the consequences of a false accusation than someone who is truly guilty to get away um, because there wasn't enough evidence. They don't believe in a God who's going to judge and who's going to make all things right. Um, but you, you look at this thing, it says, because the knowledge is out there for everyone, um, there's accountability. And if you look at America, I mean, like we have our Constitution, how much that's actually paid attention to anymore, but we have the laws and they're there, and everyone's supposed to be accountable to them. Now, in practice, it, it doesn't always bear out. Of course, even in in ancient Israel. We see it didn't always bear out because uh, sinful men did, did wicked things, but God dealt with them. Um, 
And here in America, where we're not abiding by justice and righteousness, no one's getting away with it. You know, the judgment is here. <laughs> judgment is coming. Um, but but those kind of principles of just the knowledge being there for everyone and, and having an understanding of it and having accountability for it. You know, that's why we have things like, uh, you know, the Bill of Rights to ensure that, you know, certain things are, are done, you know, decently and in order. That's a little bit of an aside. But it, it was an interesting thing here as you think about it. Like even in God's law, as he's giving it out, as he's revealing it to his people, there's principles there for for righteousness that other nations weren't weren't abiding by. You know, they had a king or they had their, their cult religion and they had the secret knowledge. I mean, you think about New Testament times and the Gnostics and they had the secret knowledge. You want to get in on that. It's not for everyone. Um, God puts his word out there uh, for all of us. So that's um, another interesting thing that, you know, it's just another benefit that we see and that we can uh, point out. Um, yes. Yes. Um, getting, referring to what you said a little earlier, um, there were no laws on the land until the Lord. Did other nations have any laws? There were laws, yeah. They did have laws? Sure. Oh, I thought it was the Hebrews that had the first laws. No, I mean, there was, keep in mind, something interesting about Scripture is like we get this progressive revelation. Um, and God does spell out for uh, his people, you know, the conduct that they ought to live by. And so we have, you know, we have the Ten Commandments, that perfect moral standard. And then we have the case law that follows that shows how the Ten Commandments play out into every area of life. Like we say, thou shalt not murder, you know, but in Exodus um, uh, 20, I think, it gives an example of a, of a pregnant woman who um, is hit by two men are fighting and one of them strikes her, right? And, and the child comes out before the due time. And if there's no harm to the child, there's still a fine for his, um, his reckless indifference, you know, his, his carelessness. Uh, and if any harm comes to the child eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. This wasn't about vengeance. In the hands of the civil magistrate, it was about the uh, punishment fitting the crime and, and being a just retribution for what happens. Um, other, so we see like, you know, how, how does, what does that mean for murder? You know, um, how does that play out in, in the case of, of a pregnant woman of abortion? You know, uh, we see that. Other nations... I mean, people knew before that it was wrong to murder, you know, before God gave the Ten Commandments. I mean, you have, of course, back in Genesis 9, after, um, you know, the flood in Noah's time, where he says, you know, uh, if man sheds another man's blood, by man his blood will be shed, because man had been made in the image of God. So, I mean, not only was it wrong to murder, it was wrong for Cain to murder Abel. Um, and there was a, a curse put on him for that, and yet there was protection. At the time, you don't see like a civil magistrate coming to, you know, avenge the blood, as it were. God, God was going to deal with him later, more permanently. But now we see like an opening for a civil magistrate after, after the flood, that if someone does commit a crime like that, justice will be um, visited on him, you know. Um, and so people knew God. I mean, when you look in Romans... You, you hear him talking about the Jews who have the law, right? And they knew what God expected of them, and, but they still do it. They still break that law, and they're still guilty. And he goes, the Gentiles who don't have the law, but when they 
when they act in such a way that they show that their the law is written on their hearts, the works of the law is written on their hearts because their their conscience will accuse them or excuse them. It's showing that they know they know the law. Um, what they use to what laws that they had, um, how they punish them, um, it didn't always meet up with God's standard. So God gives us a perfect standard here in his revelation. But people before that knew that there were laws, that there was right and wrong, there was an, there was an objective standard out there to punish. We know it, na we know it naturally. No. We do know naturally, yeah, to know. a certain extent. Yeah. Specifics, though, are sometimes a little bit different. Well, even like right before the law is given in Exodus, like we see it with um, Abraham, like when he goes into the tree of cities and like his wife is taken from him because he doesn't tell them that she's his wife. Right. And they know that was wrong and that that would approve curse from God mm -hmm. by like committing adultery with her. Um, and also like with, and I don't know if this that was, was a, Moses. Excuse me, that was a custom of the day. Well, what would have happened with them is um, his concern was that, yes, if she has a husband, right. they have to kill the husband, right? If they want the woman, they, you know, they'll, they'll kill off the husband. But if he's just, you know, her brother, well, then they'll give him stuff, you know? And like, well, well thanks. So we'll, we'll take her into the household now. And, and here's like a, like a, a bridal payment uh, for her. Um, oh, I'm sorry. I'm thinking of when when um, Sarah pushed Abraham into the room with uh, Hagar, Hagar in the tent. Yeah, and that was, that a, was a custom of the day. That was a custom of the day, actually. Yeah, yeah. the ancient Near East, and like if 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 a wife wasn't able to give her a husband uh, a child, they would Rachel. take an handmaid. Yeah. So I mean, uh, these were Rachel customs that obviously, yes. and you see that you know prior to the giving of the law, you, you see the people following along that you know. So Abraham with with uh, Hagar. And then later on, you know, Rachel. Rachel says, all right, you take my maidservant. And then Leah stops bearing. She says, you take my maidservant. So now the guy's got four wives and a lot of headaches. And so, you know, this, Poor there was, there were law. Yeah, well, he was, he got what he needed. Um, yeah. I didn't mean it like that. Um, he, I think it was awesome. He was called a perfect man. Wait, what? He was called a perfect man by God. So, he was? Yeah. Where? Uh, in Genesis. God calls him a perfect man. He was a scoundrel. No, he wasn't. He's Jacob needs scoundrel. Deceiver. No, he's deceiver. <laughs> am, I, am I missing something? We'll pick that up after. Oh, okay. Um, I don't. I don't okay, well, I'm sorry. No, it's okay. Uh, I mean, this is this is the the fun thing about discussing scripture because uh, there's all sorts of different things that we can discuss, and it is it is fascinating how like we have a, a certain perspective of you know a, a biblical figure and what God's perspective on them is. I mean, who yes. who looks at Lot and goes righteous man? Yes. yes, yes <laughs> yeah. Yes. Um, the New Testament does. <laughs> so it's like, okay, you know, God knows. Steve, you have a question? Yeah, no, I just wanted to, the fact, I always knew that our American justice system was biblical, based on biblical principles, and I saw it as grace, mm -hmm. God's grace, you're innocent until proven guilty, mm -hmm. you're beyond the shadow of a doubt, beyond uh, reasonable, I'm not going to remember the correct word, uh -huh. But it's it's it, I looked at it as it was grace. Mm -hmm. I never I never thought of it as well. If he's guilty and we didn't convict him, 
he's going to have to deal with God anyway. Right. That that we're losing that. Yeah, we are losing. We're that. losing that. We and, we have strayed very far from it's just, that's biblical just, standards when yeah. it comes to justice. I mean, keep in mind, obviously, some of the um, the early settlers uh, of America, you know, the Puritans that had come over and stuff like that, they came with the word of God, and they came desiring to have uh, a godly community, you know. Um, and we've gotten away from that. I mean, the criminal justice system is severely lacking in the justice part of it, um, you know. And sometimes that was even the religious people who who did that, like the the, the Quakers and stuff, like somehow thought they were more merciful than God. You know, this the idea of penitentiary. You know, it's like we'll make them penitent. You know, we'll we'll teach them. Well, that's not how God did it. The, the idea of someone stealing something from you. They would have to repay it and then some. And if they couldn't, they had to work it off until they could do it. That's justice, and that's and there's something covenantal in that as well. The idea of sending them off to a cage for ten years, and so the person, you know, they they stole from you, and now your tax dollars have to feed them and house them for ten years. That's not justice. But we think that that's somehow mercy. It's not merciful to throw someone in a cage. For years and make them unproductive and take them away from their family um, it's not merciful to put uh, someone who violates the image of, of God in such a way that they would they would rape someone or kill someone and then we'll say we'll, we'll put them in jail for a number of years and hope they don't do it again when they come out no certain things have to be handled a certain way and God has put the standard out there question uh, no. okay um, sorry I don't know why anyway um, no, it's interesting because we, we've kind of been trained like not to think that way and this idea that like sin has that ability to like mar the soul, like mm. perhaps permanently in some way. It depends. If, um, if you're in Christ, you're in the creation, um, obviously we, you know, we, we, we have to deal with the consequences of sin. In this lifetime, and yet God tells us, for those who are His, for those who love Him, He's using it for good. Um, that doesn't mean that people can do bad things to you and say, "Well, grace abounds." You know, no, that that still has to be dealt with. Um, so, looking at God's word and how does it apply today, um, our our whole society would be far better off. Everyone's got a, a you know. Everyone wants justice and righteousness, so they say. You know, their their standard of justice and righteousness, uh, what works best for them. And you have a lot of competing voices out there. You have people who hate each other, hate other groups or whatever for whatever reason. But it's it's not through God's standard; it's their own arbitrary standard. And and they're calling for justice, and they're calling for righteousness, and they're they're calling for loving your neighbor and and helping the poor. And yet, how are they doing that? And is it actually loving them? Is it actually helping them? Um, God's word has something to say about all of it. God's word has something to say about the welfare system. God's word has something to say about um, immigration. All these different things. Um, I, don't know if, I don't know if we'll be able to touch all of them through Leviticus. Um, but studying through God's word, we could actually understand that. And that's why Christians must study God's word. Because they must be, you know, we're supposed to be the repairers of the ruins, you know, the restorers of the breach. 
we're in an expectation of a fallen world with broken things, and we who are God's people with God's word, with God's spirit, are able to rebuild society for the glory of God. But we need to know how. And too many people are, they want to do that, but they don't have the foggiest idea. And they keep using man's arbitrary solutions um, that are just making things worse. And so that's why we're in America right now dealing with all the craziness um, because we don't have God's word and we're not applying it. So um, that's a topic I love to talk about, but it's not exactly what I was intending on talking about here. I want to, uh, to close out this portion of the introduction and just talk about covenant. I'm just going to uh, share a few things and then we'll, we'll wrap it up, and if we have more questions or comments, we can do that. Um, so we hold to... We hold to covenant theology. We recognize that God deals with um, people in covenant relationship, right? Um, who knows how many points there are in the covenantal model? How many points in a covenantal model? Lawrence is giving his answer. <laughs> it's five. No, no. Now he knows. Five. Yeah, he put his hand up. Five. <laughs> put his hand up and sharing at the same time. Five points in the covenantal model. Um, they use the acronym uh, uh, Theos, or uh, T H E O S, the Greek word for God. T H O S. E O S. E O S. There's no C. T. T for transcendence. Oh, I see. We'll get it. I'm mumbling. Don't worry about it. So T is for transcendence. Um, uh, imminence, sovereignty, those are other words to describe it. Two is for hierarchy. Uh, H is for hierarchy, not two. That's the second point of the covenantal model. Don't mind me. Hierarchy, representation, authority. Uh, e is for ethics, which is or boundaries, uh, dominion. O is for oath, judgment, sanctions. And S is for succession. Or inheritance or continuity. Um, succession, also known as inheritance, continuity. So, what was the secondary uh, definition of transcendence? Imminence, I M M A N E N C E. Okay. So God deals, that's the, that's the five points of the covenantal model. The transcendence, who is over all things. You know, they, they would have like these uh, suzerain treaties back in the ancient Near East. You know, they, they'd have like a powerful king who would come to a less powerful people group. And he goes, congratulations. <laughs> uh, I'm entering a, a covenant with you, a treaty with you. Um, and that's the way it's going to be. And he'll, there'll be a hierarchy. There's someone who's in charge, or there's some mediator. There's someone, you know, there's there's a, a rank uh, to it of, of authority. Um, and then he would give the the ethics, the the boundaries, dominion, um, 
as far as the stipulations, what are the rules, you know, and that's usually like one of the, one of the center points there, like what's expected of the people who are involved in this covenant. Um, and the oath is sanctions. If you obey the covenant, if you obey the treaty, good things will happen. You know, the, the protection will be there. Any provisions that are offered will be there. Um, on the other hand, if you disobey, well, then there's going to be trouble. <laughs> there's going to be consequences. And uh, the, the succession or the inheritance is like, um, how does this continue on into the future? You know, uh, what will be uh, the, the line down the way to, to keep things in place? And so the Pentateuch, the first five books. Can you explain that more, the succession? The succession? Oh, I'll tell you what. Um, think of it for our purposes as inheritance, like the future, right? The future of what's to come. And then I'll, I'll explain it a little bit by way of example that God gives us. <laughs> um, has anyone ever heard of the first five books of the Bible being? Torah. Well, the Torah, but I mean like in terms of like the covenantal model. Has anyone ever heard of that explanation? The first five books are like the first are like the five points of the covenantal model. I see that hand. <laughs> there's, there's one. All right. So consider this. Consider Genesis, right? Uh, Genesis is the first book of the Bible, but it deals with God's transcendence. What is what's the first line? What's the first verse? In the beginning, God. In the, in the beginning, God. What? So everything. That makes him a transcendent. <laughs> he's over everything, right? Um, you know, he, he's the, the beginning of history. He's, he's laying it out for us. Um, so the opening words affirm him as creator, testifies to his absolute transcendence, um, the foundation of the creator-creature distinction. Um, and even in that, even in Genesis, you, you see the, the covenant, um, you see those kind of covenantal points. He established a hierarchy through his covenant, mankind over nature, right? They were to have dominion over the rest of creation. Uh, each man ruling over his own wife, being the head over her. He gave a law. There were stipulations. Don't eat from uh, the tree, right? There was a, an oath, a sanction. If he did, there would be judgment. There would be death, right? He was uh, sent out of the garden. And even though they had violated his law, because of his grace and his plan of redemption for the future, he promised them an heir, a succession, an inheritance. Um, so those right there in the beginning, in the first few chapters, wow. we see the five-point covenantal model uh, of God setting up a covenant with mankind and then violating it, and yet God having uh, a plan of redemption. Yes, sir. So immediately after the first covenant was broken, there was a new covenant, and it was a, at, at all times has there been a covenant? There has always been covenant, yes. Uh, there's always been covenant relationship. What what Paul refers to in, in the covenants that come is, you know, the, the covenants of, of promise, right? Um, so you, you have that promise of an heir, uh, of coming, a, a Messiah who's going to come, who is going to make things right. Uh, and then and we have the flood, and we have the Noahic covenant, but that's more for, like, everyone. And then you have... The Abrahamic covenant where he says, you know, your seed, right, is going to bless all the families of the earth. You know, um, you know, nations will come from you. Uh, kings will come from you. And he promises a descendant, though, um, that's going to make things right. Yes. Sorry. Um, that's okay. I know you were, you were saying, like, how in, from the very beginning, 
like those five points are seen. Um, for the secession or inheritance, um, would you say that that would be in how God had a backup plan when? Well, we wouldn't call it a backup plan. <laughs> we would call it His plan from from the beginning. No, but I know what you I know what you mean. <laughs> that was yeah, it wasn't a plan B. Like no, He yeah. knew. But yes. Um, Okay. He was promising he was promising Messiah. He said, you know, I'm gonna put enmity between your seed and her seed, you know, and you'll bruise his heel, he'll bruise your head, you'll bruise his heel. He's promising someone who's going to come and and you know, we had switched sides. You know, at that point he has to put like, you know, uh, we we mentioned the other day at church, um, he had to put enmity between the seed of the woman and, and the seed of the serpent because right now they're on the same side. <laughs> they're at enmity with God. And so he has to put – he has to break up that division and, and reclaim you know, people for himself. And so he's going to do that through the seed of the woman. And so Adam believes that because he called her a woman, and that was her name. It was like the first time. I was like, woman, <laughs> right? And yet then he calls her Eve, the mother of all the living. So he's believing that there's an inheritance, that there's a succession, that there's promises ahead, that there's um, things will be made right. So he's already believing for the future that God will keep covenant promises. Okay. Genesis three sixteen is the curse. Uh -huh. Is the second covenant. Is this the first covenant being? Well, you would call it, we call it the the proto evangelium, the the first gospel. The, Okay. Yeah, you know, when he says I'm gonna put, you know, enmity between. It's a covenant, also. It's a promise, yeah. Yeah. What's the difference between a promise and a covenant? I'll have you talk to Lawrence after. <laughs> well, I, I, I thought of them as two different words. A promise is, is something that's promised. Right. Well, no, a, co a covenant is a covenant is. A covenant has conditions. A covenant does have conditions, yes. But a promise doesn't, or does it? Right. How do I want to get into that now? <laughs> we'll we'll discuss it after. Right. We'll 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 get a little more into it. Um, just because of time-wise, I want to uh, go on a little. Well, we're fine. So that's Genesis, right? That's that's the transcendence. God is transcendent over all things, and we even see in there there's a covenant, right? The, the covenant of works that He has with Adam. Um, you know, there's a hierarchy in the creation. There's stipulations, rules. There's punishment for for violating those rules and yet there's still a succession um that's put in place an heir that is promised to come the book of exodus is is the book of the covenant itself in, in terms of um you know the mosaic covenant that was coming uh he took the book of the covenant it says in exodus 24 and read it in the audience of the people and they said all that the lord hath said we will do and will be obedient so Exodus 24, at this point, he's given them the Ten Commandments. He's given them case law. He's talked about, he's, he's touched on sacrifices and festivals and, and so all these different things. And he's told them ahead of time, this is what's going to be expected of them. And they're like, agreed. This is, you know, we'll, we'll do it. And, um, but Exodus, it contains that the covenant that's going to, you know, be what everyone's looking at, you know, through the course of the Old Testament, um, but Exodus itself is also hierarchy, okay? Um, it's the H. It's the H. It's the hierarchy. Um, because there's some people who say, like, well, it's a historical prologue, and it's just it's just giving history, but it, it's actually so much more than that. Um, Exodus was written to prove 
that God was above Pharaoh in history, that God, uh, God was king over all the rivals, that, that no one got to take his place. Um, and so hierarchy is the, is the point, too, of the biblical covenant model. Um, God had brought visible historical sanctions against Egypt. This is part of the thing that we need to understand as believers because people think that, like, well, God is only in covenant relationship with his people, um, you know, so that we're, we're thinking about salvation, we're thinking about a relationship with Christ. Um, and we're not, you know, a lot of people don't think that he has, uh, he's not reigning over the rest of the world. You know, um, everyone else is just free to do whatever they want and they don't have to answer the God. You know, like, you know they have other gods and they're false gods and stuff like that, but they're not, they don't have to deal with God, but they do. Uh, God brought visible historical sanctions against Egypt, right? It was evidence of his covenantal authority in history. Um, and again, I'm, I'm getting this from um, uh, Gary North. So he says, if you deny God's predictable covenantal corporate sanctions in the new covenant history, you deny uh, the historical prologue aspect of the new covenant. You reduce the rule of God of the New Testament to the status of supreme ruler of a priestly hierarchy. You deny his kingly authority over everything. Um, so he said this is he was referring to a, a, another uh, theologian who took a different view um, I don't want to muddy the waters but well he says the covenants negative sanctions revealed in the imprecatory Psalms led to uh, that's another thing it's just gonna muddy the waters as far he's talking about Klein and I, I haven't talked about uh, his his ethical situation so we're gonna skip over that but Meredith Klein, yeah. Um, he goes, this. if we don't realize, if we don't understand that God is telling us in Scripture, right, that he's king over all things, and, and even the kings and nations, you know, they all have to bow the knee to Christ. Um, you know, if, if we don't think that to be true, and if we're not proclaiming that to our leaders, that they have to bow the knee to Christ, they have to honor Christ, um, and then in our mind, we have no hope with all that. We're just trying to like survive through this world. It says it leaves us without the possibility of constructing either a systematically biblical political theory or a broader Christian social theory. You don't have anything to say to the world if Christ isn't king. If God isn't king over all things, then it's just like you and God and you try to get together with your friends. But you're not doing anything out there. You're not making disciples. You're not teaching people all that Christ commanded, which is what he told us to do. He told us to make disciples. He told us to teach the world uh, all the things that he's commanded. So Exodus, we see um, we see the five-point covenantal model in the, uh, Exodus as well. You have the intervention of God into history to deliver his people, you know, showing his transcendence there. You have the establishment of Israel's civil judicial hierarchy. You have Moses as a mediator, and they set up judges. Uh, you have the giving of the law, right? Um, you have the judgment of Israel after the golden calf incident. So like he's telling them the law and he, he's giving them the law. Moses is coming down with the Ten Commandments and they're already into idolatry. <laughs> they're already worshiping a golden calf. And so there are sanctions that go along with it. Like these are the rules and you're breaking it and this is what happens. And yet Exodus ends with the building of the tabernacle, which is going to go with them into Canaan. He's still going to go with them. He's still going to dwell with them. And so you see the five-point covenantal model, even in Exodus, even as Exodus broadly is like the second um, 
uh, point of the covenant model. Um, oh, this is fun. The Ten Commandments. Um, you know, people argue whether it's like one through four relates to God, you know, man and God, and then six through uh, five through ten, really, because you have honor your parents. So, like, well, that's, you know, that's part of your horizontal relationships. And so they think, like, well, the tablets are, it's one through four and, and five through ten. Um, it's actually split up into two sets of five, and they're covenantal, <laughs> they're covenantal model, sort of, um, in, uh, in the pattern. Um, and he got this, I think, from uh, Ray Sutton, who helped to point this out and to see it. The first commandment is what? To honor God. And it goes, it's paralleled with the sixth commandment, the prohibition against murdering a man, because man is made in the image of God, right? Um, the fifth commandment is honor father and mother, household priest, he says, uh, which has to do with succession, that you might live long in God's land. The tenth commandment is a prohib uh, prohibition against covetousness, which has to do with succession, because you're not desiring to appropriate another person's inheritance. Um, does that make sense? Just no, no? <laughs> not, not at all. What's that? Sorry, no, it didn't. Make okay, sense. the fifth commandment is to honor your mother and father. Why? What, what's the promise? You'll live long in the land, right? That's your inheritance. The land is your inheritance. Oh. That's the succession. If you honor God, if you do all these things, you recognize him as transcendent and you obey the, the hierarchy, you follow along with all the rules, the, the stipulations found the ethics, the oaths is, you know, if you do good, you'll be blessed. If you don't, you'll be cursed. There'll be consequences. And then the inheritance is what you have to look forward to. That's the thing. So if you honor your parents you'll have an inheritance, as it were. When it comes to the Tenth Commandment, don't covet other people's inheritance, what God has given them, whether it be a spouse or, you know, property or animals. Like, don't go after someone else's inheritance. Um, and we'll actually touch on a couple more as we go. Did you have a question? Oh, yeah. Um, so when talking about covenant theology and how there's always five points, so are you saying that, well... One, there was a covenant in Genesis. Then, then you were talking about in Exodus how we see it again with Moses. But then you were also pointing out how it was kind of like point one was seen in Genesis, point two was kind of seen in Exodus, and then is there point three? In Leviticus. As we go along. So yeah. there's like so, five points all over the place. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's almost like we're, we're what's the, no yeah I mean and because God just keeps we see pictures of it even in, in in history and and the way God relates to his people like it's just constantly there so when you have people who don't really think about covenant theology and they don't think about like God working in covenant relationship with people like they're looking past all this and they're not realizing the significance of even how God you know lays out <laughs> lays out the scriptures and how he shows himself um, through them. So in Genesis, you have that transcendence, you know, and then there's hierarchy. But you see even like those small, you know, well, in Genesis, you have the covenant initially given, that covenant of works. And the Mosaic covenant um, that we have as the Old Testament, it's the covenant of works like republished, you know, more, very much more specific and in detail, right? But it's now there's covenants of, of promise because now it's not just like, you're dead, you're cut off, 
well, now there's a sacrifice, and it's pointing to Christ. It's pointing to that covenant of grace that's going to come. So, but just looking at the setup of it. Now, what book did you get this from? This was Gary North, um, and he might have got some of that from, from Ray Sutton. Well, what Boundaries and Dominion. So, it's a big. <laughs> it's available on PDF for free. Uh, Gary North, free books. Um, all right, so moving along, we'll, we'll wrap up after this, maybe. <laughs> um, Leviticus is the book that established uh, Israel's ritual and moral, moral boundaries. Um, he goes, it's therefore a book about dominion, for boundaries in the Bible are always associated with dominion. Uh, the third point of the biblical covenant deals with boundaries. Uh, similarly, uh, the, third commandment, the third commandment deals with boundaries. Um, you have the proper use of God's name in our dealings with each other, therefore affirming an ownership boundary surrounding God's name. You couldn't just use it any which way. You couldn't take it in a name. That means not cursing, not swearing falsely, you know, all these different ways. He owned it, and, and you were to honor it and to uh, acknowledge those uh uh, the boundaries and, and ethics. He goes, the Eighth Commandment parallels that for its uh, law three in the second list of five, thou shalt not steal, is a command regarding legal boundaries, not taking what doesn't belong to you, not misusing something that's not yours. Um, the Eighth Commandment indicates the concept of boundaries is basic to economic ethics, the third point of the covenant. And again, the Fifth Commandment, honor thy mother and father. Um, a father and mother, that thy days may be long um, upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. And that's the law of inheritance, point five. Um, when it comes to boundaries, when it comes to holiness, now you're familiar hopefully with that word and what it means. It's like, you know, set apart. Like God is other. He's other than us. There's this, you know, creator-creature distinction. Um, and yet... He calls his people to be holy, like he is set apart, different than what everyone else is doing. And so he'll use words like, you know, clean and unclean and, and uh, you know, the, the holy and the profane. And there's these distinctions. And so Leviticus is talking about that as the, as the third book and the third point, um, the, the ethics, as it were, the, the stipulations, what God is expecting of them. He puts out there that they're supposed to be set, set apart and separated. There's other, like, other nations have laws. They have certain understandings of what's right and wrong. Um, but because they're not God's standard, they're not, you know, they're not consistent. Uh, they're holding to idolatry. And so their standard of morality is corrupt and perverse. And, you know, he tells them a number of times, you know, don't learn their ways. Don't do what they do. Um don't marry them because what's going to happen is I they had the sanctions okay they had these sanctions and it was um they were being spewed out of the land no it's not his <laughs> was I there, there were sanctions against those people like here are the people of Canaan and he was driving them out of the land and he was destroying them because they weren't they didn't follow his law 
right? And he was actually, he tells Abraham that this land will be your descendants, right? But he goes, the, the iniquity of the Amorites isn't yet complete. So here they are violating God's law and he's being patient with them. But eventually it's going to get to the point where they, they sin, you know, the it's going to reach to heaven and it's going to be time to bring judgment and destruction on them. And he's going to spew them out of the land. And he tells them, if you do what they did, the same thing is going to happen to you. So we see God's law is not just for here the Israelites, but also for um, for everyone. Everyone's responsible for it. Uh, so there's that. The, the laws actually um, are, are meant for our benefit in the long run. It's, yes. These are not just strict things for us. Strict commandments for us to follow. Um, there's always a reason. There is a so, reason. So, so, you know, not to commit adultery, um, then you don't have unwanted pregnancies outside the marriage. You don't have venereal disease. There's always something. And those are, I mean, and that's true. And those are pragmatic reasons why, like, it's not good, even for an unbeliever, if they didn't honor God, but they obeyed his commandments, common grace would actually mean that they're, their life would be more enjoyable and more successful. You know, better things would happen when they would follow his ways. It would not save them because eating something that's forbidden was enough to condemn them to hell. You know, to not to not trust God, to not believe God, to not love God would condemn them to hell. So you could do all these other things and be, humanly speaking, a very nice person, a very good person. It couldn't save you salvifically at this point. You know, we have this fallen nature. Um the law of God is a reflection of his character, who he is. Um, and so we need to keep that in mind, that we're image bearers, and we're supposed to be bearing his image and, and accurately representing who he is. And all those laws are are in, in step with keeping his character and, and reflecting that. Um, so yes, they're, they're beneficial to us, for sure. Um, and they bring glory to him when we do that. So there's reasons for that. But I mean, we'll see some things in here that you know uh, are ceremonial, and but they're they're teaching us, they're 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 showing us pictures. You know, there are certain things that we don't have to keep anymore. I mean, God, you know, in Christ, He has fulfilled all those things, um, and so they're no longer necessary for us to do. It's been fulfilled in Christ. And then there's other things that we're still under obligation to make sure that we're we're carrying out and we're following and we're being faithful to. Um, the fourth point is uh, oaths, right? Sanctions. The book of Numbers, the fourth book in the, in the Pentateuch, is um, God's judgment against Israel in the wilderness. Here they had been brought to the up to the promised land, and they send the spies in, and they're like, it's great, it's beautiful, but those guys are huge, and there's no way we can take it. And they don't believe God, they don't trust God, they rebel against him, and so he says, okay, here's your judgment. You're not going in the promised land. And and they're in a boundary. They, they, they can't go back to Egypt and they can't go into the promised land. So they're, they're left to just wander in the wilderness until they all die out. And then the next generation can go and um, take the land. So even there, we see the sanctions for refusing to obey the laws that were given. And then Deuteronomy is the book of Israel's inheritance. It's, it's point five of the biblical covenant. It addressed a new generation that was destined to possess the land, that land of promise after you know they had survived 40 years in the wilderness. 
Uh, the children of the generation of the Exodus renewed their covenant with God and inherited uh, Canaan on this basis. So there was this covenant renewal. Moses blessed the tribes, and then, you know, he died outside the land for his, his own disobedience, but God allowed him to go up on Mount Nebo, Mount Nebo and see the promised land. He got to see the inheritance, and then it closes with uh, the elevation of Joshua to leadership, and that's another transitional event of inheritance or succession. You have someone who's going to take on, you know, that covenant and move it into the next generation. And that's what Joshua did. So <laughs> there's that. Um, we're, we're just over an hour, which we went longer than I was intending on going. Um, and, and you guys look a little tired. <laughs> uh, would you believe that there's more... There's more imagery of that five-point covenantal model in the book. <laughs> you know, um, there's five basic sacrifices, and they also show a representation of um, the five-point of the covenantal model. I'll let you think about that because it's late. So I think we're going we're gonna to wrap it up. I'm going to officially close this out, and then if you guys have questions and stuff, uh, we can talk about that. But... Basically, as we as we look at the book of Leviticus, we're going to get into, you know, we're, we're going to talk about the typology. You know, we're going to talk about how, you know, th these things are pointing to Christ. We're going to talk to things about like sacrifice and worship. I mean, if there's something that you should definitely pick up on in the book of Leviticus, it's that principle of the, the regulative principle of worship. If you've heard that term, the RPW, like you worship God how he tells you to. And you have the normative principle of worship, which a lot of people hold to is like, well, as long as he doesn't forbid anything, well, then we can include that. But God is very particular <laughs> and he shows that. And even um, it's in Leviticus that we have the example, uh, the account of the strange fire being offered um, by Nadab and Abihu and they the strange virus consumes them <laughs> you know God sends down fire and destroys them um, we worship God the way he wants us to worship him and so that's that's something else we're gonna see um, but we're gonna talk about as we go through the book we're gonna we're gonna try to bring out as much to light as possible in explaining some of these things to show their relevance for today or how they pointed to Christ uh, how you know, God had his people and how you know he was going to dwell with them and how they were going to relate to him and, and all the things that he's teaching them through it. Um, and we're going to see how much of this stuff applies today in, in the economy, which seems weird, right, That's to, to think of it. Um, but God is setting up a society to live by his standards. And so even as we see, like, the law was given to all people. It wasn't just like a few people had the that secret hidden knowledge and they could just do whatever they want with the people who were under their charge. Everyone knows. And you think about today. We read in uh, Timothy and Titus what the uh, qualifications for deacons and overseers are, right? For the elders of the church. So we know, like, you're supposed to do this. <laughs> and if you're not, you're not supposed to be doing that. You're, you're supposed to, you know, you're disqualified. You know, there's accountability. It, it's No one is... is special in that way like where they have this authority over other people and they don't have any authority above them no god calls us all to uh to account and he lets us know what he expects of us so like there's just these tremendous things that you know god has not left us to to go about in the dark and not know what he expects and the same goes for the civil arena for our, you know, representatives, for our rulers. How are they supposed to act? How are they supposed to do things? 
Um, when we look at our society, like we said, criminal justice system, welfare, uh, the economy, you know, debt, all those different things, that's all in Scripture, and we can find it. So Leviticus is going to show us a bunch of things, but it's also going to show us how to look for those things. By going through the study, mm. how do you... How do you know what parts of God's law, you know, revealed in the Old Testament are still for today? How, how do you know where to apply it? Learning these principles are going to help us to look at other areas and see, oh, that works this way. You know, so it's it's helping to give us a hermeneutic for, for looking at things and seeing how they apply today. So it's going to be useful in a lot of different ways. So I'm very much looking forward to it. I would encourage you to read through it and just get familiar with it because it's a lot and i don't know the last time you read through leviticus <laughs> um, but i would encourage that so you just have some context as we go through it so we'll close in prayer and um if you guys have questions or anything we can we can talk so let's pray heavenly father we thank you again for this time we thank you for your word uh, we pray god that as we go through this um study as we read your word and 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 wrestle with trying to figure out how it applies today and and just seeing the insights of how you have revealed yourself how you have um pointed from uh, years before for the the christ who would come to redeem a people and how he fulfills these things and how we as your people ought to walk in holiness and and walk before you we pray that you'd give us wisdom you give us discernment that you'd help us to love you more and to serve you better and and know how we might uh walk before you and and be holy as you are holy so we pray that this study would be fruitful we pray that you would bless it and uh, we pray that our minds would be on you and your word and so we we thank you again for this time in christ name we pray amen okay you have been listening to the reformed rookie podcast where we aim to teach Reformed theology to beginners or rookies. Be sure to look us up on the web at www.reformedrookie.com, where you will find many more learning tools and aids to help you grow in your understanding of all things Reformed. And remember, Semper Reformanda! Dr. Luther, are you prepared to retract these writings? In some, I discuss faith and good works. If I were to retract these, I should be denying accepted Christian truths. Martin Luther, you have not yet answered the question. Will you recant, or will you not? Here it is. I am bound to my beliefs by the texts of the Bible. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Amen.